You're listening to episode 2.37 of the Midlife Improvement Project. And on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Susan Salinger, an 80-year-old powerhouse, about her book, Sidelined, How Women Can Navigate a Broken Healthcare System. This book examines the many ways in which some women manage and sometimes mismanage their healthcare. Listen in today for some fantastic advice to help you better advocate for yourself as you make decisions around your healthcare in the medical model. Let's go. Welcome to the Midlife Improvement Project, a podcast about what really matters as you negotiate midlife. Some might call this time of life a crisis, but I want to introduce you to the idea that it's an awakening. This is a time to listen to your soul, to find your purpose, to reflect on what you really want to do and be in the days you have left here on planet Earth, and then write your own midlife manifesto. You are not less of yourself on the other side of midlife. You are more. This is a time to be celebrated, not tolerated. I'm your midlife wake-up coach, Dr. Peggy Malone. I am a healthcare provider turned life coach who helps women in midlife lean into the magic of being a woman as we head into the second half. I help you to decide where you want to go next with this one precious life and really claim all of your big dreams and goals while caring less about what anyone else thinks about it. After all, if someone is going to be unhappy with your life, it shouldn't be you. I've just passed the milestone of turning 50, and I want to use this podcast as my midlife manifesto. There will be no fading into the background and quietly living out my golden years with the assumption that my best years are behind me over here. I'm just getting started. I invite you to come with me. Listen in each week as I help you to wake up to what's possible for you in midlife as you learn to manage your mind, get curious about what got you here, and get clear about where you want to go next on the way to being an even better you. Let's get after it. Susan Salinger is the author and researcher behind Sidelined, How Women Can Navigate a Broken Healthcare System. Sideline examines the many ways in which some women manage and sometimes mismanage their healthcare. Susan explores how women, typically the medical gatekeepers for their families, tend to be extremely conscientious about taking care of themselves, yet at the same time, inadvertently undermine their own care. They often hesitate to call the doctor when they don't feel well and worry that their doctor visit will take time away from their families or work. They may hesitate to ask doctors the necessary questions and don't always comply with the doctor's instructions. Salinger's research reveals how conflicted many women are about the medical decisions they ultimately make. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Susan attended UCLA to study English. After graduation, she worked alongside her husband, Fred, for 25 years at their production company, Salinger Films, which produced corporate training and development films distributed worldwide. Today, at age 80, Susan lives in Northern California to be near her incredible family, which includes her two daughters, four grandchildren, a cat named Max, and a dog named J.D., Salinger. When she is not speaking about her book or spending time with family and friends, you will find Susan powerlifting to stay in shape. We are in for a treat today, my friends. In my practice as a chiropractor and in my work as a coach, I spend a lot of time talking to women about their health and not only how to build good habits to improve and maintain their health as they get older, but also how to best advocate for themselves while navigating the oftentimes complicated world of the medical model and the healthcare system. As such, I'm always looking for information and resources that I can point my patients and clients to so that they can be the happiest and healthiest versions of themselves. My guest today is a wonderful example of one such resource that can help you to best manage your health and healthcare decisions at any age and stage of life. 
She is a powerhouse of information, and she is also a power lifter at age 80, which I'm sure we can find out more about during our conversation today. Susan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I love powerlifting, I have to tell you. <laughs> you have, let's just get it right into that. I looked it up. You have a TikTok account called Grandma Games, right? Yes, and I'm really much too old for this, but it's the most fun. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so first of all, um, I know how old you are, but if you feel comfortable doing so, will you share with the audience and also just tell a little bit about yourself and who you help and what you do so that we, we know who we're talking to? Aha, uh -huh, fair enough. Well, first of all, right now I'm 80, but in a couple of weeks I'll be 81, which I, I mean, you guys are worried about being in your 50s, 60s, 70s, your babies. You oh know? my gosh, I love it. <laughs> it's really amazing. I mean, I don't know where the time went, but anyway, <laughs> so who I am, I'm a grandmother, an exercise I try to be an exercise fanatic. I mean, I have to be upfront about it. I hate exercise, but I know that it's responsible for the quality of life I'm, I'm living now. And we can talk about that. But I'm a writer. I've just started my second book. I'm really here for the first one. But I, I want to talk about uh, women and shame in the medical community because I was so in uh, what's the word, I guess, fascinated to find out how many women felt ashamed of being ill. So I want to talk about that a little more in book two. Um, and that's who I am. You know, I, I sit here and I write and then I exercise and, and then I come back and write, see my grandchildren occasionally. I had six boys here watching TV or the fights or something over the weekend. <laughs> oh my goodness, it sounds fantastic. All right, you mentioned the writing, so that's what you're here for. So let's jump right into it. You wrote a book called Sideline, right. and I want to talk about this book. So what's the story that led, like, what's your story that led to this book? What prompted you to write this book? Well, but the first thing that prompted me actually was a personal experience I had many, many years ago where I was, I was on hormones for osteoporosis, and the doctor said, hey, look, you know, there's a new hormone out. We think it'll be better for your bones. Let's give it a shot. And, you know, sure, why not? I'm, I'm always willing. And so I, I, then I started some vaginal bleeding as soon as I took the new hormone. And obviously, to me, it was obvious that the new hormone was responsible and the doctor disagreed. And he ran a bunch of tests. Um, and he said, you need exploratory surgery. And, and I want to say up front, he was a great doctor. I didn't feel that he wanted the money. He wasn't redoing his kitchen. You know, it was nothing like that. He was very concerned for me. He liked me. He suspected ovarian cancer. I mean, so in, in some ways he was right on. And if he'd been right, he would have saved my life. But he wasn't right. I did have the surgery. They found nothing. I went back on the old hormones and, you know, life went on. And then I just sort of forgot about it. I had kids, et cetera. So then many, many years later, when my husband and I sold our business, I retired, which I have far too much energy for that. It lasted about yes, 12 Yes, obviously. I don't, I, mean, was, I don't know what in the world I was thinking, but that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Anyway, so I went back to school and started taking some anthropology classes not because I was fascinated by anthropology, but because they were the only classes I could get into that were somewhat related to my English history, liberal arts education. 
But I turned out I loved them. I had really never taken anthro in college. So I took a, some medical anthropology classes and I realized how much medical information there is. And I, I don't mean the science of it, but behavioral things about women, how, how much of that is not getting out there. Academics write for each other. And a lot of their information is so valuable, so fabulous, but it doesn't get out to the general public. So that, and then of course I started remembering my own experience and I thought, boy, if I'd known then what I know now, you know, one of those retrospects always a hundred percent. So, but I really wanted to write a book about some of the, the hurdles that women have to jump to get the best healthcare, to get the most effective healthcare. And I didn't realize that there were so many or that it was so difficult. I haven't really been sick particularly in my life. I mean, of all the people to write a book on healthcare, it's, it's a peculiar choice, but it was, it was, I was fascinated with all the information I heard. So okay. that's the background. That was the background. All right. And then when you were actually writing the book, how did you go about it? Cause I know that this is an interesting story as well. You interviewed yeah. a certain number of women that had certain experiences. Right, exactly. What I did is I, I interviewed about, gosh, 50, 60 women. And that was interesting in and of itself because I, I just went on, went to the different support groups and put out over the internet, I'm a writer, I'd like to interview about, I mean, you've got lupus, you've got whatever, whatever, you've got chronic pain, you've got breast cancer. I picked women and support groups from support groups with all different diseases. I mean, I wanted that in, on purpose because I'm interested in the behavior of women. I'm, I'm not a doctor. So the science of it is not my field. So I, what I did is I took all of these women and, you know, kind of put all their interviews together and extrapolated about a few of the behaviors that they had in common, regardless of their particular disease. Here, let me give you an example. Yeah, For example, yes. I, I was very surprised to hear that most women put themselves last. And there was a study done. I mean, it's funny, but it isn't funny. But there was a study done where women were given a list of five things to prioritize. You know, what would they put first? And, you know, they all put most of them put their children first. Second, they put their pets. I loved that. Third, they put their elderly parents. Fourth, they put their significant others. And fifth, they put themselves and it, it it it's that was mind boggling to me because women do so much of the caretaking. I mean, actually, all over the world. And if you don't feel well and you feel like crap, you're going to be irritable. You're going to be tired, you know, et cetera. You've got to put yourself first to take the best care of your family. So that was just one of the things that they all had in common that I found, you know, particularly interesting. Well, um, I normally leave this question until closer to the end of the interview, but it's very relevant here. One of the questions I ask every single one of my guests that come on, comes on the show is that what I've been told and what I like to share is that when a woman puts herself first, everyone around her benefits. And it's fascinating that we've been conditioned as women to put ourselves last. And here's actual scientific data that shows yes. that it's true that women do put themselves last. So uh, I love this. Um, do you have, and I'm sure you do, some thoughts on what women can do to change the order of that priority list? Well, I think the actually I do. I'm glad you asked. But I, I think that part of part of the some of the things that women can do is really you have to change your framework, change change your thinking. 
It is important to put yourself first. You're not being selfish. Don't feel guilty. You're do if if you if it helps, think about putting yourself first as doing it for others because you will take better care of them. You will be in a better in a better mood. You will be less irritable. You will have more energy, all of which will benefit not only you but the your family or whomever it is that you take care of. And I think that that's just a very important, even the airline says, you know, put your own mask on before you put your mask on your kid. I mean, it's, it's when you think about it, it's obvious, but yeah. we're not socialized, but it's, it's a cultural thing. We're not socialized that way. And Absolutely. it's true mostly, you know, all over the world. Um, fascinating. I know it is fascinating. And it's, it's a disservice not only to women, but to the families and the people around them. I, I'm strong. You can tell it's one of my pet my pet things, but yeah. there it is. <laughs> me, me too, Susan. I'm glad we're working on this together. I love yeah. it. All right. Now, you mentioned some um, behaviors that you saw or that you found when you did these yeah. interviews, and you mentioned that women put themselves last. What else did you find was a commonality among these women? Well, the first thing I found really was that women talk to doctors differently from men. Um, women do tend to get a psychological diagnosis and one, you know, more often than men do. Well, one of the reasons, I mean, to be fair, is we suffer from anxiety and depression more than men do. So it's not that that diagnosis is, is always inaccurate. But one of the reasons for that is we talk to our doctors differently from men. Men are much more succinct. Women go in and they talk, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I tell the whole story. Not only do I have a sore throat, but it's making me tired and I can't do this and I wish I could do that. And I can talk so much about how I'm feeling about it that the symptoms can get lost in the pro The physical symptoms can get lost in the process, whereas men will go in and they'll be objective. And I mean, they'll say I have a sore throat. And they'll stop talking, you know, which, as you can tell from how much I talk here, that's unbelievable to me. <laughs> there it is. Um, and it, it, they they view the doctor as a partner in, in part of it. They're, they're a part of a team. They want to solve this problem together. Whereas women really tend to, as I said, not only say the, all their feelings, but look to the doctor to, to be the problem solver. And I think that's changing today a little bit. Um, I did read, you know, the book is now a year old and I did research this a few years ago, but I think it's still true, but I do think it's improving. And that was one of the main things I found that we, if we maybe were just, a, and I'm not saying we shouldn't tell doctors how we feel because of course we should, but at the same time, maybe if we were a little more succinct about it, we could steer the diagnosis more towards our physical symptoms than towards, rather than towards our emotional ones. And um, the other yeah, I was just going to say, to, I'm going to interject here for a second, and maybe you were just about to say this, but did this uh, outcome of the diagnosis change when the medical professional was a female or a male? Not particularly. I think, you know, it's funny you asked me that, and I have to go really look this up. When I This is so interesting to me. When I started doing the research, people said, should I have a female doctor or a male doctor? And at the, at the time I did the research... It was really 50-50. Um, it didn't matter. Female, I mean, there was, there is research. Female doctors talk to you more. Female doctors take longer. The, the visit is physically longer than, than with a male doctor. But on the other hand, I mean, if you're on your lunch hour and you're in a hurry, you're better off with a male doctor. So it kind of depended what, what was the fit? What did you need? But lately there has been some more research coming out and I'm, I'm going to even go further once we hang up. But um, <laughs> Okay. 
You know, I really am. But now it, it it seems that women are better off with women doctors because women do talk more. They do listen differently from a man doctor. Man do- a male doctor, the the older research said is more focused on your on your on the physiology and the biology of what's going on, and a woman doctor focuses more on the whole picture. But you know, to be honest, now that I've said that. I have a cardiologist who is a man and he spends about an hour with me. And that's in today's, you know, today's milieu. That's an amazing amount of time. And he always wants to know what's going on. And I have another doctor that's a female and she says, hi, how are you? And I say, fine. And then we move on. So, I mean, you got, you can't be, you can't stereotype. And even though I just almost did. (laughs) Okay. So you mentioned before that sometimes women do themselves a disservice in the way that they're describing things. So if you were to direct a woman as she's headed into her medical appointment, what advice would you give her as she's speaking to her doctor? Actually, that's an excellent question. And I have four or five things that I really recommend. And the first thing that will really help that particular situation is to go in with a written agenda. You want to write down your symptoms and prioritize them. And the reason I said write, I mean, I guess you can put them in your phone, but it's a really good idea to use that old pencil and paper. And the reason for that, well, there's several reasons for that. One, you won't forget to to tell the doctor something that could be important because it's right there on your note. But secondly, it gives you a chance to focus the visit in the way that that you want it to go. And and this was interesting to me. I was on another podcast recently with the doctor and she was saying she loves it when patients come in with a list of symptoms because she reviews it and she may choose to change the the way they've prioritized. She told me a story about actually a man that had come in and they went through the whole visit. And she as she was walking out the door, he, he said to her, you know, I've got this mole on my back. Well, she turned around. I mean, that's that was the most important thing most important symptom he told the whole time. And she said, if he'd had a list, she would have done that first thing. So it's helpful to the doctor as well. But then there's, there's, there's still more. So interrupt me whenever, because I talk a lot. I know. No, no, I love it. Bring it on. (laughs) I'm an easy interview. But (laughs) the second thing that's important, I think it's always important to ask for the clinical name of your diagnosis, because if you do that, you can go home and look it up. Does this feel comfortable to you? And ask the doctor to spell it. Because if you're like me, you'll never spell it correctly. It's not some of these names are amazing. So you really want to look it up and make sure that you feel comfortable. And then the third thing that you want to do when you're in the doctor's office, and this is also really critical, repeat back what you heard the doctor say. And what that does is it gives you a chance to be heard that you heard, you know, to be sure you heard correctly. We all misunderstand. And also it gives doctors a chance to be sure that they said what they meant to say. We also always misspeak. The the statistic that blew me away is that only about 15% of women will tell the doctor when they don't understand something. So that means that 85% of us roughly, you know, let's let's say it's wrong, even 75% of us will leave the doctor's office not really fully understanding what we've been told. So that's why that that third tip is so important. Wow, that's amazing to me. It is. It was amazing to me. That was actually one of the more shocking things I, I researched because, I mean, I, I, I do not do that. Um, and that's the other reason if you write it down or, you know, and, and you go home and look it up, if you have access to a computer, which I guess most people do today, obviously, um, you have a chance to really double check things. And another thing I always do, and this 
also helps women a lot because misdiagnosis is so common. But you want to say, what else could this possibly be? I, I know in your experience, it seems to be disease A, but is there anything else? Is there a disease B or C that might that might fit these same similar these same symptoms? And if you do all that, and if you can take somebody with you, you'll really be in charge of the interview, which is what you want to be. You want to focus it so that you get your questions answered and your symptoms treated appropriately or accurately. Um, I love all of these. And the one thing that I'll add to it that I will tell my patients as they're heading to specialist appointments or they're going to their doctor is especially if they know that it might be stressful and they're like they're in fight or flight and they're not taking in the information. That's where having somebody with you is helpful. But I also tell them to we all have our like our mini computer in our hand. Right. Like press record on the voice note so that you can yes. listen back to it later. And then you can like, while you're in a state that's calmer, understand the information or at least listen to it again. And then you can ask further questions instead of right. leaving the office and being like, I don't know what the heck just happened. And I don't know what they said. You know, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story because I mean, look, look, I am a researcher. I do take charge of the interview. But now that I've told you that, I also get incredibly anxious and particularly at 80 or almost 81. I mean, crap happens. Let's face it. You sure, know, yeah. So now I take my daughter with me because I really don't hear a lot of what's going on. Yeah. And the doctor said to me, you know, I'm on, I, I was on blood pressure medication and he lowered my dose by half. And that was great. And uh, my daughter said to me on the way out, she said, that's really great, mom. You know, you're almost 81 years old and he wants to take you off blood pressure medication. I didn't hear that. I heard that he wanted me to go on half of it. I didn't know the goal was to get off. Comp I mean, I missed the whole point of the. So this uh, is a perfect example yeah. of that. Yes. I, just, I was so anxious that, oh, my heart, oh, my this. You know? <laughs> so take somebody with you. It really helps. <laughs> um, the other thing I'm curious about, and um, I read this when I was going through the questions that um, uh, that you sent before the interview, yes. is that women are not the best um, at, or they hesitate to get a second opinion if they don't necessarily like the first one. So why is that? And, and what, it, what have you found with that? Well, I found that we just, you know, we've been taught to play nice. It's back to this, that socialization thing again. We don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. We don't want to make him or her or them feel bad. Um, we don't want to be rude. And I mean, really, they're the professionals, so they know what's best. I don't think that's quite as true today. But I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's really a socialization process. Although I did have one woman, in fact, a couple of women uh, told me that they were so afraid of being labeled a bad patient, a difficult patient. And even though they knew they weren't being that, they didn't want, they were afraid it would like go on their chart and follow them throughout their medical career, so to speak. Um, so they had, that was one woman said she would never ask for a second opinion. And that's another of my pet peeve. Second opinions are so important. They're just so important. Um, one of the things I didn't know is that there's so many different diseases out there, so many of which share similar symptoms. So really, I mean, unless you break a leg, which is an obvious diagnosis, it's really, uh, for a doctor, it can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. And we see what we expect to see. So the same symptoms can be stress to a psychologist and stomach problems to a gastroenterologist and back problems to a chiropractor. Sure. You know? Yeah. If I've got a big hammer, everything you got looks like a nail. 
That's right. Yeah, yes. no, it's exactly right. So that's really the the, the reasoning behind the, the importance of second opinions. So everybody should bear that in mind. Okay. And um, so if somebody's currently going through this and they feel like they went to their doctor and then based on hearing this information today that you're sharing, they're like, oh, I did it wrong or I messed that up. What can they do going forward to sort of get themselves up back on the right path? Well, I think, I'd, first of all, I would get a second opinion. Seriously. I mean, I would. And one of the things I did leave out, and if, if you do decide, and if that's your scenario, and you do decide to go for a second opinion, try to find somebody with different training. I mean, I don't I don't go to somebody in the same office. I mean, if if somebody was trained, I'm from L.A., so if somebody was trained at UCLA, I think I try to go to somebody at SC, something like that, because you, the point is you want a different perspective. And if if it if if your diagnosis gets gets confirmed, then that's great. And if it doesn't, then and I don't know the insurance on this, but then you may you might need a third opinion. Um, like I said, we see what we expect to see. So I think in the scenario that you just wrote, so or just spoke, so to speak, I would get a different opinion, go to a different doctor. And it doesn't mean your first doctor was wrong. It doesn't mean they were they were bad or inadequate. It just means you, you're not sure about this. Um, one of the things that I share with my patients, and I think this is sort of related to what you're saying, is that when you get yourself a healthcare provider, they could be the most amazing healthcare provider ever. You love them. They love you. They have your best interests at heart. But even when that's the case, they don't have as much invested in the situation as you do. So you, as a patient, it's really important to learn how to advocate for yourself. So yes. with that in mind, what advice would you give women around this whole scenario of navigating the healthcare system? Well, I think really what you just said is is critical. It's you, what I always say, and I tell myself: it's your body. You've only got one, and you need to make sure that you're in charge of it. I mean, what what happened to me years ago with that doctor? He he really meant well. There is no question in my mind, and he was one of the best doctors, one of the best gynecologists in the city at the time I went to them. I I know that because I did my research. But he was just wrong. I mean, it can happen. And if I had taken, I mean, I had, I could have gotten a second opinion. I could have gone back on the old hormones and seen to see if the symptoms stopped. I wasn't going to die in a day, or you know, was not like I was going to keel over. It truly wasn't an emergency. A week wouldn't, a week's delay wouldn't have killed me. So, I mean, I think that there's really things that we can do to make sure that we're in charge. And one of the things that we can do, and I want to go back to it for a minute, is always ask the doctor if it if it seems relevant, what else could this possibly be? And that helps you guarantee that you're on the right track, because you really don't want to be treated for something you don't have. Uh, you know, the cure is can be worse than the disease, seriously. Yeah, I think that's good advice for sure. Um, so obviously, this was a big undertaking, doing all this interview and writing this book. What did this book and, and the process of writing it teach you about yourself? It taught me that I get, I'm going to repeat myself, but I, I do feel it strongly. It taught me that I really need to take charge of my own care, particularly now that I'm older. Because, um, you know, ageism, it it can it can be a diagnosis and they don't always doctors don't always look at the individual person they go oh well you're 80 you know of course you're going to you you're, of course you're going to get stiff or something cuz i mean you're 80 years old 
Well, not necessarily. I'll tell you a story about my mother who had some, when uh, she was 75, I think, and she had some knee surgery, which went fine. She was just an outpatient. It was no big deal. And they gave her some pain medication and she went home. And in 48 hours, she couldn't remember who she was. I mean, this was a woman that didn't have a senile bone in her body. And she literally became senile overnight. It was frightening. And we went back to the doctor and said, hey, you know, something's going on. And he was a, an old family doctor, a good friend of ours. And he took me aside and he said, Sue, you really have to let your parents, you know, your parents are getting older. You really have to let them age graciously. And I went, Steve, come on. Nobody, nobody gets senile overnight. And, you know, we went home, we threw out the pills and she was allergic to something and she was back to normal. But ageism is a waste, I call it a wastebasket diagnosis. You know, when you're 80, or and I, I don't think at 70, it occurs as much, but at my age, it, it does. And they throw everything into that. Well, you know, it's part of getting old. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, I'm not, you know, that I think that's my, that's my, uh, that, that's what the book taught me in a way. Well, I put this in the category for my patients of my doctor said it's normal. And then I look at them and I say, hey, just because something is common doesn't mean it's right. normal. So we need to make sure we're differentiating between those two things. Right. And just because I'm old doesn't mean that I shouldn't, I should be able to walk. I mean, I've never had a problem walking. So all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden my hip hurts. I don't know why, but I'm exercising for it. Um, I, I just, I refuse to take any medication. I don't, I'm, the exercise Pilates seems to be doing the trick. So you're on the move or lose it system. I like this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that said, um, obviously, you mentioned already that you're 80, almost 81. So yep. this, this podcast is called the Midlife Improvement Project. So I want you to think back to when you were in your 40s and 50s, you told me earlier that that seems like it was a while ago, but it yeah. probably goes by in a blink too, right? So yes, it does. It does. So what do you what do you think that the biggest lesson that you got through your midlife? What do you remember about that time in your life? And what, what was the biggest lesson of midlife for you? I think in a certain sense, I got lucky. And I say that, I mean, it's gonna, sounds like a funny way to put it, but I was diagnosed with osteoporosis when I was in my forties, not osteopenia, but osteoporosis. And I was told, and I'm, I don't think that was true looking back on it, but I was told that I could be one of those women that when you step off a curb, you know, your bones shatter. And I got terrified. I mean, who wouldn't? And so that's when I started weightlifting. I started walking. I started weightlifting. I, I had been, I'm not a swimmer at all, but we had a pool and I was swimming, but swimming isn't really good for my bone. It doesn't have, I mean, it's good for me, but it's not good for my bones. So I went into resistance exercises. And I, I think that the most important thing I've learned, and I think that really exercise, the, the best way to, to handle old age is to prepare for it. And exercise is absolutely one of the best, if not the best way. I, I know that it's it's why I'm one of the reasons, besides good genes and good luck. I mean, I don't want to say that that's, you know, but I think absolutely that exercise, it keeps you moving. And I, I've just learned with my hip, you know, I'm one of those lucky people because I've just never really had much pain. And so when when this happened, I thought, oh, shit, now I'm getting arthritis. You know, it's not allowed. And and the, and it, I, I have to say it, it's much better than it was. I, I mean, I worked through it. 
Um, I mean, I well, check with yeah, them. a big piece of that will be the way that you're thinking about it. Like the fact that you've just decided it's not going to slow you down and you're going to sort no. it out means right. that you'll get past it quicker than somebody that just accepts, oh, I guess this is what happens. Well, I think that a lot of people, and I mean, it's it's so easy to do when you something hurts. So, you, you, you know, you take care of it, you lie around and you don't use it and you let it heal and all that's important too. But at some point, I mean, you have to talk to your doctor first. I'm not a doctor. But for me, it was important to get up. And I mean, I did the first couple of days. I had a heating pad. I mean, I did the whole number. But then by day three, I couldn't lie around anymore. I'm not good at that in the best of circumstances. <laughs> and you're on your way to feeling better now, you said, yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thank gosh for exercise. And I really mean that. And I think the only other thing you could, that I that I did learn was also the importance of, I watch my diet. I mean, when I say I'm healthy and I, I do have good genes, my parents lived, you know, well, my dad died of prostate cancer. That's not going to happen to me. But my parents lived to an older age and I, I've also had good luck, but I've worked at it. I really have. I, I do exercise and I, I eat well. I mean, I, I screw up occasionally, don't we all? But nevertheless, um, I think it's really important to, if you maintain healthy habits, as difficult as it feels right now, it will pay off when you're 80. All right. So. I love this. And I think it's advice that I will take and hopefully everyone will that's listening. <laughs> um, I'm also very curious. Do you want to share a little bit uh, with us about your thoughts about what you're writing the second book about? Because yeah. I think there's some real magic in women recognizing that shame is something that is holding us back. So um, can you give us a little bit, like just give us a little sneak peek into what's happening with this next book, Sue? Well, I think shame is such an important concept for women. And let me just talk about book one, just for a quick minute, but the backstory is that I was just so amazed how many women felt ashamed about being ill. And what shame does, and I, I didn't realize this, is it harms your health. It makes healing that much more difficult. And I think, in fact, I put together a couple of focus groups and hired a facilitator and did everything I was supposed to do to have a good focus group and found much to my surprise that the facilitator was almost unnecessary because none of the women or almost almost none of the women had ever talked with anybody other than their doctor about their illness. They were so ashamed for being for feeling ill so that when they got together with excuse me, when they got together with other women who also were ill, it just came pouring out. And so that's kind of what started the second book, because the, the title of the second book is, no, it's not all in your head, Women, Shame, and the Medical Community. At least that's the working title. <clears throat> excuse me, I have a cough, just a sec. Time well, out. When you take your sip, I'll just share this story with you. I was just talking to um, a client about this today, that the way I can relate to this is my husband and I a decade ago went through a fertility journey and we had a bunch of miscarriages. And at the time I felt shame, like very much so. I, it was a secret. We didn't share it with anybody. And when I started talking about it, just like you're saying in these focus groups, everybody's putting up their hand and saying me too. And I was like, right. oh, right. oh, like this is why, it, as you're saying, it's so important for women in particular to talk about it. Incidentally, have you heard uh, the Susan Burton podcast on infertility? You should really, you should really listen to it. It's okay. on um, Ira Glasses. I forget what it's called. I can't remember the name of it. But uh, dial up Susan Burton fertility. Okay, treatment. I'll check it out. You'll, yeah, you'll really appreciate it. But anyway, so and so one of the things I really wanted to investigate 
was why women feel so ashamed and also how the medical community sometimes, and I want to be very careful here because I am not anti-doctor at all, but some doctors, some of the time, and some women feel like they've been dismissed, ignored, told it's all in their head. And and there is a lot of research on this. Women are given antidepressants far more than men are. Um, and again, we also uh, suffer from depression more than men do. But sometimes it is, it's a prescription that's off base. And so I think that the medical community inadvertently can reinforce and perpetuate the shame that women are already feeling. Um, what I found in, in, in the women I talked with was that so many of them blamed their illness on, on stress and their inability to manage it. Somebody said, I got my breast cancer because I can't manage my stress. Somebody else was sure she got lupus because she couldn't manage her stress, etc. So they felt that being sick, their illness was telling the world, oh, look, she's sick. So therefore she can't manage her life. She's a loser is how they interpreted it. Wow. Um, so can you imagine if you're feeling that way and the doctor says, well, yeah, you're stressed and that's why you got sick, it takes a bad situation and makes it worse. So that's that's book one and book two in a nutshell. <laughs> wow, such important work. I'm so grateful that you're writing this and I think it will very much help a lot of women. So thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm also Great. curious to know if anybody wants to get the book or when, if there's people who are listening and they're interested in learning more about you or where they can connect with you or come and say hi on the socials, where can we direct them to, Susan? Oh, I'm on everything. My website is susansalinger.com. That's S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R. And I'm on Instagram, TikTok. Uh, TikTok's the most fun. I'm grandma.gains, G-A-I-N-S. Why gains, you might ask, because my teenage grandsons told me that that means weightlifting and building muscle, that everybody would know that except me. So that's <laughs> why, so now I'm grandma.gains. I love it. I know it was how to make how you how only your family could make you feel really old. You know? Oh my goodness. Or the opposite. <laughs> Obviously, this is making you young. At least it's keeping me engaged. But I'm on all I'm on Facebook. I mean, I'm on all of it. It's it's okay. the S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R that you have to remember. It's the E that's significant there. Okay. Well, I will make sure that in the show notes for this episode, I will include all of those links. So if you want to Go and check out uh, Grandma Gaines or you want to see, get more information about Susan's book, you can find it there. Um, any final words of wisdom that you want to share or the one thing that people should take away from our conversation today? It's your body. Take care of it. That was in a nutshell. I mean, seriously, it was, take charge of the doctor interview, research what you're told, try to exercise and eat well. A successful old age is preparing for it. And that includes making sure that you stay healthy and researching your own issues. Fantastic. Susan, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story and your wisdom. It's so needed and so appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. I really had fun. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of the Midlife Improvement Project. Thank you so much to my amazing guest today, Susan Salinger. Remember that no matter how much you love your healthcare provider and how much they are looking out for your health and your best interests, you are the one with the most invested in every healthcare decision. And it's so important to learn how to advocate for yourself. You got this. 
If you get the feeling that I might be your coach and you are interested in learning more about me and my work and perhaps how we could work together, especially as you navigate the challenges and adventures of midlife, come and sign up for my mini course called Wake Up to Life 2.0. I'll send you an email every Monday for five weeks that will help you to get super clear on where you want to go next with this one precious life. Go to drpeggymalone.com forward slash wake up to sign up now. Also, I'd love it if you would come and say hi on Instagram. You can find me there at Dr. Peggy Malone, and that is where you'll find me discussing my life as a 50-year-old who likes to snowboard, back handspring, and also to encourage other women to find out what is fun and adventurous for them in midlife. As usual, you'll find all of the resources and links that were mentioned during today's show in the show notes at drpeggymalone.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's show and you don't want to ever miss an episode, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you usually listen. Until next time, my friends, stay focused and get after it. Mm-hmm.